0: I don't think the Obama administration did all it could for General Motors. I think it should have did more.
1: Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet
2: Money. I'm Adam Davidson in New York. And I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. Today is Friday, May 29th. That was Daryl Roper, a GM employee you heard at the top.
1: On the podcast today, we talk about the economic logic of a ruthless madman. Yeah, that's in our Jim Cramer segment. We'll also be taking a look at the regime of Kim Jong-il. But first, our planet money indicator is 5.7 percent. Actually, negative 5.7 percent. Right. Uh, Sorry,
2: I forgot the minus sign. The U.S. economy shrank at an annualized rate of 5.7
1: percent in the first three months of the year. And that actually counts as good news. Well, relatively, and only in a time like this. The Commerce Department originally reported that the economy shrank at a 6% rate in those three months. As they always do, they took some time and gave a more careful look and have adjusted the number a bit upwards. So the economy shrank a lot, but not quite as much as we thought. There, don't you feel richer already? So now we switch to another economy that's having a tough time, the North Korean economy. This is a topic I've been more and more
2: fascinated by lately. And you spoke with Curtis Melvin. He's an economics PhD student at George Mason University, and he's got this
1: blog, North Korea Economy Watch. We link to it on the Planet Money blog at npr.org slash money. Melvin started thinking a lot, really becoming obsessed with the North Korean economy when he went to the country, actually twice as a tourist. I asked him, how do you go to North Korea?
0: I don't recommend you go the way I do because I actually visited with a pro-North Korean communist group. <laughs> so Are, I was you subje- a pro- Are you a pro-North Korean communist? No, I'm not at all, uh, just for the record. Uh, it, was, uh, it was one of the only ways I could get in at the time. And uh, I was subjected to significantly more propaganda than the usual tourist is. Is this uh, an
1: American pro-North Korean?
0: No, North it's actually, uh, it was mostly Europeans. And wow. uh, How did you find them? Uh, the lovely uh, power of the Internet to bring people together. Did you
1: get to travel around? What did you get to see? I've
0: seen uh, quite a bit of North Korea. Uh, I visited, uh, obviously, Pyongyang for a few days. They take you around and show you the main monuments there. Uh, everyone has to go to uh, Mansu Hill, which is the uh, where the largest, uh, most popular statue of President Kim Il-sung exists. Uh, we also got to go to uh, his mausoleum in Pyongyang, and he's held in-state like uh, Lenin and Chairman Mao and Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. Oh, you it, see his embalmed body. That's exactly right. It's it's on a scale above. I've seen the others, and uh, it's on a scale significantly higher than any of the other communist leaders that are being preserved. Uh, you mean it's really, a
1: massive palace?
0: Yeah, it's a a shrine. It was his office. It was essentially the White House of North Korea. And when he died, uh, they converted it into, uh, without beating around the bush, it's a fairly ridiculously sized mausoleum covered in marble. They spent billions of dollars on it. You go through, uh, you ride in on an escalator that's like a kilometer long. And uh, you walk through a metal detector, and then you go (laughs) through this air tunnel that blows all the dust off your clothes. And uh, when you enter the room with Kim Il-sung's body, you sort of march in line and then bow on all three sides of it. Uh, and then when you go out the other end, you walk through several rooms where they have uh, his Mercedes, his train car, and uh, various honorary degrees and awards he's been given by you know, leaders of, uh, of uh, third world countries and non-allied countries. It's all very funny, actually.
1: All right, this should probably come as a surprise to nobody, but Melvin says when you're a tourist, you see a very choreographed picture. But even that choreography reveals a lot about the place.
0: North Korea is stuck in a time warp, and you feel that from the minute you get on the airplane in Beijing to fly to Pyongyang. Uh, the music is reminiscent of the 1950s. The hairstyles of waitresses on the airplane look straight out of Donna Reed, and so do their uh, in-flight uniforms. And uh, when you arrive in North Korea, they do not tell you about the recent changes that have happened there. They tell you the official account of the state of their economy, and there's very little data.
1: Those recent changes he's talking about are the first flickers, and it's possible they're also the last flickers of free market activity there. Hey, Adam, I have
2: to say, you know, I picture North Korea as a classic Stalinist state, literally like... Uh, like like a museum, you know, the last place you can go to see communism in action. I imagine um, a central government that sort of that tells every worker what job to do, every factory what to produce. but what so what's he is he saying there there actually are privately owned stores and businesses there?
1: No, not exactly. I mean your your picture is pretty accurate. North Korea is a big Stalinist communist state. Everybody there has an assigned job and they have to go there every day or they get in a lot of trouble. They get paid a small wage. It's on average Melvin says the equivalent about a buck a month. Wow. You can't live off a buck a month, can you? I mean it's yeah, poor but not even in North Korea you can't live off of that. Absolutely not. And you know, it used to be the state would provide your Basic necessities. They gave you a house. They gave you food. But you know, since the Soviet Union fell, since the big famine in the 1990s, the government just can't give everybody food. So people started growing their own. They'd get a chicken and take the eggs and sell them to their neighbors or they'd grab some rice and make noodles at home and sell those to their neighbors. See, that doesn't sound very communist to me. Was that illegal? The government let them do it? At first it was illegal uh, or it was just completely under the surface. This was just people desperately trying to survive and you know they'd make a few pennies here or there. But eventually the government noticed this was happening and instead of completely getting rid of it, they recognized that that people do need this market mechanism to to get food. So the government sort of accommodates this little small free market activity. It's its kind of like what happened at different times in the Soviet Union and in China. Right. But for that reason, it's going it's to look scary to the North Korean government, right? Because they look over at what happened
2: in the Soviet Union and they see, you know, that if people start making money on their own, maybe they don't really need the big state government anymore. You know, they, there's this, independent, messy, capitalist thing that the government has to deal with.
1: Right. And they have no power over it. Look what happened to the Soviet Union. it, It collapsed. And the North Korean regime, above all else, does not want to collapse. So the markets work, but they carefully control them. And- There's this other thing. They do not want people outside of North Korea knowing anything about these markets. The official North Korea story, and North Korea loves its official story, is that the state provides all needs to the people. So it's awfully embarrassing to have people know about these markets. And also, they're worried that Americans and other Westerners will look at these markets and say, wow, there's this independent power base. Maybe we can work with that to overthrow the regime. So Melvin was not able to go to any of these markets except the one big public one in Pyongyang. But he said when he got home to Virginia, he was actually able to learn a lot more about these markets than he did there because he uses Google Earth, the unbelievably cool program that allows you to zoom in and it has really good satellite images of North Korea. And you can actually see these markets dotting the country. And he says, you know, you can even see how they have grown over the last few years. Also on our blog, we link to his very helpful Google Earth plugin- that identifies the markets and many other things there, including the big states of the rich elitist, uh rulers and lots of other facts about North Korea. It's really, I've spent a lot of time on it. It's really, really cool. The other thing he said is go to YouTube, one of the most subversive tools in the anti-North Korea uh, battle, because there are these anti-regime activists who, in most of them in China, who've been smuggling cameras into North Korea and encouraging North Koreans to record these markets so we can learn more about them. Uh, you can also, find those by going to YouTube and just entering "North Korea Market" in the search term. Uh, I did this while I was talking to Curtis Melvin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> "Jangmadang" is the North Korean word for
1: market. Oh, <laughs> yeah. so this is free North Korea broadcasting, and it, it looks like a camera in a bag. Yeah, bowl in a bag. But it, it, it's a more formal-looking market than I would have expected. It's um, You can see these little, I mean, it's not fancy, but it's mm-hmm. little concrete stands with sort of tin roofs, it looks like.
0: Yeah. And there's it's sort of a, busy.
1: It's lots of people. It uh, looks like clothes are the main thing.
0: Yeah, it's very, very normal goods. It's clothes, food, household appliances. Um, and uh, there's nothing really great or nothing surprising about them. It's just that foreigners are are not allowed to see them. And uh, actually there was a... uh, I'm not sure if he's Chinese or American or Chinese-American. There's a student at Yale. His name is Jerry Guo. And uh, he went with a Chinese tour group to North Korea um, last year. And he was staying in the Do Hotel, which is a tourist hotel in the middle of the Taedong River They keep all the tourists on an island. (laughs) And... uh, Since Jerry was Asian, he was able to walk right across uh, the bridge and enter Pyongyang without anyone batting an eye at him. And uh, there's a small market, it's just called the Central Market. Uh, It's the market that serves the Central District in Pyongyang. And he walked right in there, and no one stopped him. And he uh, was able to get about four or five pictures of that market before someone saw him and blew a whistle. And uh, he was... uh, uh, surrounded and ushered off to this office and then interrogated by various levels of officials. Um, and uh, he hid the, the uh, data card from his camera uh, somewhere else on his body. And they never, they never went through a great effort to get it back from him. But he got out with the uh, photos of the inside of this market. And uh, it was nothing spectacular except that there weren't any photos of this market available. And it was unremarkable in any sense, except that we saw just how normal the market was.
1: So, Dave, these markets are radically changing the outsider's view of North Korea in a really complicated way. Basically, what Melvin told me and some other people who study North Korea's economy is that the farther you get away from Pyongyang, the more important these markets are. And they really are doing that thing the regime is scared of. They are creating independent local power bases. And it's not entirely clear where this is going. Uh, the These are still small and nascent enough that the North Korean regime could crush them, we assume, pretty easily. But the North Korean regime so far is letting this flourish, and it's gotten to the point where some regional governors, some regional local officials away from Pyongyang are making so much money through corrupt bribes and the like off of these markets that they're encouraging them to exist even against the interests of the central state. So we don't know where this is going, we don't know what this will mean, but... Some people who want to see the regime of Kim Jong-il fall say that they see promising signs. Other people tell me there are no promising signs. The Kim Jong-il regime, uh, even after his stroke, is is here to stay. That, that even if he passes away, it will still be a tightly controlled Stalinist state. That's so interesting. It really is like
2: capitalism just sort of happens if you let it.
1: Well, people trade goods, you know, and. Want to get something for the goods they trade. It, it it might not be a fully functioning capitalist system like ours, but it, it it does seem to pop up when states can no longer provide for the basic necessities. All right.
2: the The show today is actually uh, I'm realizing a study in contrast because now we're going to go from a country stuck in I don't know how whatever decade. Uh, and when when you say market there, you know you really mean a stall with a metal roof selling use clothes or something. And we go from that to uh, home here, America, with the internet, with the stock market, with cable TV, and with this guy, I'm just going to whisper his name, Jim Cramer.
3: It is time. It is time for the lightning round. I'm money. Oh, boy. Rap of fire calls. With another. You said it in the stock. I tell you what, buy, 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 or sell, sell, sell. And just to be clear... I so,
1: David, the the you told me that Jim Cramer, like you, went to Harvard... <laughs> yeah,
2: he's, he's not very public radio, is he? I mean, he sort of reminds me of, um. I, I think of him as being like professional wrestling crossed with Pee Wee Herman, crossed with uh investment advice or something like that.
1: Oh, okay. So that's standard Harvard.
2: <laughs> so, um, yeah, should we say a little bit about his show?
1: Yeah, yeah, please, for people who somehow have missed his show. And frankly, I, I have only watched little snippets of it in hotels and stuff. I've not ever sat down and really watched it.
2: Right. Um, well, he, you know, he tells people he basically gives stock advice. People call up and say, "What should I do with this?" And he says, "Buy it, sell it." And
1: um, and, and his show, me- we should just say it's on CNBC. It's called Mad Money. Right. It's very, very, very popular, especially with the with the college crowd. And I, you know,
2: you might have seen him getting beat up on on the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. You watched that, right?
1: Yeah, I saw Jon Stewart. Um, I believe he called Jim Cramer a snake oil salesman, a cheerleader for Wall Street. He said he, you know, uh, John Stewart was basically saying that Jim Cramer was in partnership with Wall Street to cheat the American people. Maybe I'm overstating it a little bit.
2: No, I think that's basically what he was saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really interested because someone then sent me this study recently, which is actually going to be published in an actual academic journal which analyzed Jim Cramer's stock picks. And it found, I'm sorry, John Stewart. Jim Cramer, actually, not totally mad. So we did this story on Morning Edition, and we're going to play it here, and then we're going to talk about something you and I, Adam, both know and love, and that I actually just got into a fight over at brunch over the weekend.
1: Right. I mean, we are geeks, I think that's safe to say, and we waste an awful lot of time, including our Sunday brunches sometimes, arguing about this really crucial topic, the efficient market hypothesis. What is the efficient market hypothesis? It basically gets at this question. Can anybody actually beat the stock market? Um, but first, let, let's actually just hear your Jim Cramer story. Hey, I'm Cramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Market.
2: On a typical Welcome show, Jim Cramer runs around on the set like in a tie, that. sleeves rolled way up, taking calls from investors wanting advice. When he needs a sound effect, he pounds oversized buttons.
0: It's the perfect time to examine what could go wrong with this market.
2: Kramer has become a national figure, which got Paul Bolster and Emery Trahan interested. They're finance professors at Northeastern University, and let's be honest, they don't watch Mad Money very often.
3: I can't say that I'm a regular viewer,
4: mostly at the gym on the Stairmaster. Scores of people do watch Kramer, though,
2: and follow his advice. So Bolster and Trahan decided to analyze Kramer's stock picks. Bolster, for his part, had his doubts Kramer would come out very well.
3: I thought that uh, this guy really is uh, hes a spectacular entertainer. He, he attracts a lot of people. He gets a lot of interest and probably attracts a lot of naive investors along the way who will pretty much do whatever he says. In their study, Bolster and Trahan considered an imaginary investment account.
2: When Kramer said buy,
3: pull the trigger. The fundamentals on Hansen are on fire.
2: They put that stock in the portfolio. When Kramer said sell,
3: no, sell, 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 Run, sell, 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 sell that stock.
2: They took the stock out. Bolster and Trahan haven't finished analyzing the recent market crash, but over two and a half years from mid 2005 to 2007, Bolster says Jim Kramer beat the major stock market benchmarks, including the Dow. And the S&P 500.
3: His return, the annualized return over the period we looked at, uh, was a little over 12% versus the S&P, which turned about 7.4% over the same time. Wow,
2: that's pretty substantial.
3: It is quite substantial.
2: 12% compared to 7%. But that comes with an asterisk that makes the results a lot more ordinary. Kramer beat the stock market, but he did it by taking on more risk. It's what you might get by buying the stocks of smaller companies. On average, they grow faster, but there's a lot more up and down. Think about it this way. You can get somewhere faster by driving 100 miles an hour, but that comes with greater risk. Every once in a while, you'll hit a tree. And by this measure, Kramer's risk-adjusted return is exactly what you'd expect. He is, they conclude, neither extraordinarily good nor unusually bad. He is harmless.
3: I don't know how he'd think about being interpreted as being a harmless guy, but uh, in, in the end, that's probably one way to interpret the study that we've got.
2: What, what does the literature say to you, and what is your conclusion after all these years about whether or not people can pick stocks and beat the market consistently?
3: You can't do it. It's just an awfully tough thing to do when you're competing against people with very similar information and with very similar incentives.
2: We called Jim Cramer, and he declined to be interviewed. But then, just this week, he mentioned the study on his show. Studies done by
0: two professors at Northeastern, Paul Bolster and Emery Trahan. I don't know them. It shows, among other things, that my performance between July 25th of 2005, right after the show started,
2: to December 31st of 2007 was, well, excellent. Kramer talked about how the study said he'd beat the market, but he didn't mention the extra risk or that his performance
1: wasn't really so surprising. So, David, one of the questions we got a lot from listeners after that story ran is a Pretty obvious one. This was analyzing Jim Cramer when the stock market was going up. It seems like okay, so he picked some stocks during a big upswing that that did better than average. But what about during the crash? How did he do then?
2: Right. So I asked them, and they said, "Well, you know, we we we're working on that. We basically just analyzed the first two and a half uh, or whatever it is years of data. But I mean, the question is really not whether." he was whether he's able to make money in the crash right it's whether he loses less money than the stock market lost in the crash you know did he beat the index right so there are some websites which try to track his picks they do it differently than the way these guys did but um but it looks like going by that he he did he did do better again than the stock market indexes
1: right but this is where the efficient market hypothesis comes in and helps us and what it helps us is to say and i want to say this um we David, you're not recommending that all Plant Money listeners just go out and watch Kramer's show and do whatever he says, right? <laughs> no, 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 we're not. Because uh, the 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 thing is, even if you were able to figure out on a day to day basis where the stock market was going, and you were able to pick stocks right. Every time you trade a stock, you pay something. You pay a fee to your broker. Even if you have one of these super cheap online services, you're still paying, say, 8 bucks every time you trade. So if you're trading hundreds of times a year, your trading costs are in the thousands of dollars. And you have to actually not only beat the stock market, you have to beat the stock market plus all those transaction costs, all the costs of beating the stock market, which makes it all – much more difficult yeah bolster and trahan make that point that if you take into account the transaction costs
2: and you do what what they're doing with buying all the stocks he recommends and selling um, then really in the end you just end up getting the same returns as the average stock market but it's worse than that because you've actually taken on more risk which led me to ask them this question hey um, how do you guys have your money invested are you stock pickers?
3: Silence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, I've uh, I've I've decided many years ago that I wasn't a stock picker. Um, I thought that uh, you know getting an advanced degree in finance and some other designations uh, qualified me to be particularly clever in terms of selecting securities, but I found out very quickly that wasn't the case. Emery, yeah, I
4: would agree. I I largely that's where my pension is. I, I have a usually when you ask people that there's a bias. They tend to tell you about the winners and not the losers, so you may get a biased result, but uh, I actually had a, a couple of nice uh, picks in the banking sector over the last 6 months, but that that was probably more due to luck than uh any particular stock picking skill that I might have.
2: But uh, so 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 most of your money bo- also is in um
4: like mutual fund index funds. Right, mostly yes. mutual and mostly index
3: mutual funds.
4: Yeah. That's so boring, you guys.
3: It is, but uh, again, this is what the if if you look at the finance uh, literature for years and years and years uh Boring beats exciting most of the time.
1: So, David, the literature he's talking about, uh, the book that I think is best for the lay people uh, to explain this view is A Random Walk Down Wall Street by um, Malkiel, Uh, but but it's basically... The the theory is, the efficient market hypothesis, the strong version is that the market basically is always right, that whatever price the market has for the stock market, it contains all the information in the world, and it's exactly, precisely right. But you don't have to go all the way there. I think a lot of people think, wait, that's nuts. That that can't possibly be right. So the theory that most people who follow this at all follow is, is that maybe the price for any given stock is wrong. but for you personally to figure that out is almost impossible. And for you to consistently figure it out over the entire length of your investing life is really impossible. Because let's say you you see something you know, um, I have a Kleenex box in front of me. So let's say you know, I, I hear that Kleenex is opening a new factory and is coming out with some really cool new Kleenex tissue technology.
2: Or I noticed that like the number of colds are up or something. And,
1: yeah, right. I think, yeah. oh, the swine flu's here. So people yeah. are going to start blowing their nose a lot more. Well, am I the only one in the world to know that? Probably not. And there's, you know, Wall Street and other places are filled with analysts studying this stuff every single day. So whatever information comes in is probably already represented in that price.
2: When I laid this out this weekend with my friend, he said, wait, this is crazy. He says, you know, um, why is everybody, why does anybody pick stocks then? And the other argument you get is, what about, you know, Warren Buffett? What about hedge funds? What about my cousin Joey? He does really well in the stock market.
3: There are some a few examples, not many. Of uh, I mean, one of the examples that people point out very often is Peter Lynch, who ran the Magellan Fund for Fidelity for a number of years and uh, had an extraordinary record.
4: No, I I did some research years back on Peter Lynch and found he and he he, again he's one of the 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 great success stories in in picking stocks. And I think he he outperformed the market nine out of thirteen years when he ran the Magellan Fund. So. You know, even Peter Lynch didn't didn't get it right every year, but on average over his tenure, he he got very good returns relative to the market.
2: Now, is that skill, or is it just we have millions of managers out there, and there's definitely going to be one guy who um, just by chance does well seven yeah. years out of ten, or whatever.
4: Well, yeah, if if you had a you know 100,000 monkeys throwing darts at the Wall Street Journal picking portfolios, you know maybe one or two of those over the years would have pretty good results so it could be due to chance i don't think you can rule out that people like peter lynch have some skills but uh, it it could be explained by chance i think this is this is the hard part about it if
2: you're just kind of an ordinary person walking around trying to think about this which is that you know we're not used to processing things uh statistically you know people all the time you see this all the time in science you know people will say well i you know i ate a banana and my headache went away therefore you know I bet bananas are really good at curing headaches like you really have to do a long-term study you know to, to, to look at these things because if you got you get enough you know you always, you always say you get enough monkeys together one of them is going to type out the first words of Shakespeare um, that doesn't mean that monkey is Shakespeare right it's just, just going right. to happen it's just random
1: and the market is completely random there's uh, millions of people all over the world making billions of choices every single day so there's so much data out there you know anyone can find any kind of pattern they want to see.
2: Right, and um, this idea of, of efficient markets—like this—is actually something uh, you know that people have studied and they can measure. And Paul Bolster made this really interesting point, which is that you can sometimes see markets becoming more efficient, becoming more difficult to beat as, as there's more and better information available.
3: If, if you look though at other markets, uh, say the market for fine art or uh, or the market for securities in a uh, in an emerging market nation you find that uh, the level of efficiency is much less. In other words, there is the opportunity for somebody who's particularly insightful to make a lot of money. But as those markets develop and mature and as more people pile in, as ma- more people see that there's the opportunity to make a lot of money, it, uh, those, those profits go away pretty quickly as the market develops.
1: So we should make very clear, we are not making any recommendations on how to invest your money. That is not something we do at Planet Money, right, David? You're right? Not secretly trying to tell people what to do no um, no I, I mentioned Burton Malkiel 's a random walk down Wall Street. I think that 's a good place to start. I also like a bogglehead guide to investing it 's just a very basic introduction to this way of thinking. I will say that I personally you know when people ask me what what stocks you know you're a business reporter what what, what should I invest in? I say what these guys say i, I you know I personally just invest in in cheap low cost passive index funds i stay as boring as possible but david i didn't read it but you read this response to malkiel's book called a non-random walk down wall street that's by andrew lowe at mit i have it on my
2: shelf and, and i read i read parts of it years ago but yeah he's basically making the case that uh you know people aren't aren't rational and sometimes they're not rational in a way that's uh consistent in a way, in theory, you could, you could make money at. So it, it's sort of a, a re- academic rebuttal. To, and and uh, this
1: is a battle. It sounds like if you want an inefficient market with high potential to make a lot of money, it sounds like North Korea. North Korea, yeah. You know, as a small and developing <laughs> economy that doesn't have a mature, efficient system.
2: Let <laughs> me t- I just want to make one final comment here about Jim Cramer. And I have to confess that before the story, I'd really only seen him when I was at the gym on the TV You know, there's no sound. And he just, he just looked, he he does look like a crazy guy jumping around. But, um, but, but for this story, I I sat down and I, you know, I watched a full hour with sound. And if you put the stock picking craziness aside, like there, there are some planet money moments in there. Really?
1: Really? Like. What we do, trying to explain the economy
2: yeah, clear I mean, he he didn't ex- and clear terms, he didn't explain the efficient market stuff. But um, you know, there are there are moments there, where, like he, he explained different kinds of initial public offerings. He just he, he talked about the satellite industry, who the customers are, what the risks are. You know, I, I I learned some stuff watching it.
1: Well, I'm gonna give it another try, I guess. So basically, we are then saying go watch Jim Cramer and <laughs> use that for all your investments. I, I found it interesting. Okay. Well, I think that's going to do us for
2: us today. We have lots of goodies on the blog, don't we, David? We do. There's a we got video of Kramer's rebuttal to the academic study of his stock picks.
1: We have the North Korea, the Google Earth plug-in, the link to the blog. Like, uh, well, that's it. So three goodies. All right. <laughs> it's uh, npr.org/slash/money. I'm David Kestenbaum, and I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. She said,
0: oh.